we often do more than one thing at a time in order to just get it all done uh, because we all have very long to-do lists and I pointed out a few times that if you, even if you just, even if we imagined a world where the only things keeping you busy were mitzvah related things, you would still have a to-do list with 613 things on. Right? Okay, you could argue about whether a don't do really belongs on the to-do list, but it would still be a very long to-do list even if you just took that as your to-do list and of course we have other things to do also. Um, so the question is how you get everything done. Multitasking is a way of trying to get everything done. Um, and this class is looking at um, what Jewish sources have to say about multitasking or about not multitasking as the case may be. So just for a quick, so we're on the same page, I'll just tell you that the rule, I'm putting rule in quotation marks, it's more of a concept, it doesn't totally function as a rule, but the rule that we've been discussing is this one. And we're going to need these words for our class today. Okay. Uh, so, comes from a, from the Gemara. This is the Gemara in the first class. It comes from the Gemara in Sukkah. Um, it is raised a few other times. Uh, I want to do like one of those interlinear translations. Like I want to write this in English, but I kind of want to write it going the wrong way so you see what each word means. Right? So, Ha'osek is one who is involved, or maybe even busy, but one who is involved in a mitzvah um, is exempt from a mitzvah. So we'll call this mitzvah number one, and we'll call this mitzvah number two. So this rule would say that if you're busy doing one mitzvah and another mitzvah opportunity comes your way, you don't stop doing mitzvah number one in order to do mitzvah number two, even if you want to, even if it seems like mitzvah number two is a better opportunity. Right? Arguably, if you apply this rule across the board, one who's involved in mitzvah number one is exempt from mitzvah number two. Um, what about multitasking? What do you think this rule would say? Can you do them both at once or not? You think not, Helene, right? You think not, how come? Um, because then you're not doing it with any kavanah. Ah, okay, great, kavanah is exactly what we're gonna talk about this time. So maybe not because, um, okay, and what about this rule? What, what do you see in this rule that tells you that you would need kavanah? I think that's a good thought, so let's develop it further. The tour does mean exempt. Yeah. I mean, but it means you're only expected to do one thing at a time. Okay, great. So, so there maybe might be some value to doing one thing at a time. Great. So maybe this word, right, exempt, right, means like the other thing that you might have thought you had to do, right, the second mitzvah that comes your way, you shouldn't shouldn't sort of like turn your attention to that, right, because you're exempt from that. And in fact, we saw last time that one of the early commentaries, one of one of the Rishon, the Ritva, says that this exempt means that this is not even, like, don't even consider this a mitzvah. As long as you're involved in mitzvah opportunity number one, mitzvah number two is like nothing to you because you need to stay focused on that first mitzvah. A lot of the Rishon have discussed, maybe in some situations you could do two things at once, and I want to, again, remind us of that because it's very relevant to what we're going to talk about this time. Tosot, for example, says, let's say that the mitzvah you're doing is wearing tzitzit. Would you really argue that you can't do any other mitzvah at that moment? So what do you guys think? As 
like kind of silly, right? Julie says it's kind of silly, right? I mean, would you really say I'm so absorbed in wearing tzitzit that I can't do any other mitzvah? Anyone think that sounds like a plausible argument? No, not so much. So now we've gotten ourselves into a situation where we feel like we have two categories of mitzvah, at least two categories of mitzvah, right? Some which do require your attention, some which you would be patur, right, which would require kavanah, and some which maybe don't. Last week we looked at um, other ways in which we would or wouldn't apply this rule, right? Because we have kind of instinctively and kind of through halacha, we have sort of like a hierarchy of mitzvot sometimes anyway. Like some, sometimes things are life-threatening, sometimes things are life-saving, sometimes you have a mitzvah from the Torah versus the rabbinic mitzvah, right? There is like a hierarchy. So we talked about that last time. But I really want to focus this time on this idea of being involved in a mitzvah makes you exempt from another mitzvah. So what does it mean to be involved in a mitzvah? And this idea that you shouldn't turn your attention to mitzvah number two presumes, as Elaine told us, that mitzvah number one requires some attention. And as I already told you, not, not every mitzvah maybe requires your attention, or maybe not every mitzvah requires the same amount of attention or the same quality of attention. Um, but there is some kind of presumption that mitzvot might require your attention, and maybe because of that, if you add in, or if you would say, forget about it, I'm going to do mitzvah number one and number two at the same time, right? Which, to me, is so the obvious solution, right? Just do them both. That's like how I live my life, basically. Um, but maybe there's some, some push here to say, no, 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 mitzvah number one absorbs your attention. And something that I said last week um, is that um, the idea of the idea of doing two things at once I think seems instinctive to many people nowadays, first of all, like it's just you can do so many more things at once you can have your hands free sell while you're also walking and also buying coffee or whatever it is, so that's, that's definitely sort of a modern reality and I want to talk more about that also um, and then I think also there's something um, is something maybe very inherently Jewish about doing so many things because we do have such a long to-do list and you very rarely hear, um, we, don't, we don't have such a strong concept in Judaism usually of people who were good only at one mitzvah. And if you think, and I can think of like maybe a few cases where we highlight the mitzvah that they were, that the person was best at, but generally speaking, it's not such a Jewish thing to be good only at one mitzvah. And I, I mentioned this last time, I taught this class, or not really this class, but a, a version, I taught some of these sources um, when I was teaching the Gemara and Sukkah um, to a very mixed group of people. Um, not all of them were Jewish, and um, the people who were Jewish came from very different backgrounds, and one person said to me, oh, this sounds very Buddhist. Like the idea that you should be focused on just one thing at a time sounds very Buddhist, it's very Zen. So I mentioned that in our last class, and afterwards, Ron, who's not here today, but we'll be back hopefully next week, uh, said, you know, it's kind of like alienating when you say that. Like, it, it makes it sound, when you say that something is like very zen, very good, it sounds like you're trying to say that it's very far into Judaism. Um, and I told him, so now I'm telling all of you, um, that I think that's true. Um, I said it that way to be provocative. Um, and I think that that's, that's kind of our question. That's like our open question for this class is, how do we think about focus, right? Is it really true that it's like Zen or New Age or Buddhist, which I don't mean to equate all those things, they're all different. Um, is it really true that that's the category we would put it into if someone said, you know what, your opportunity, mitzvah number two that you've brought to my attention is great, 
But right now, I'm really focused on mitzvah number one. And I've decided to devote my whole attention to mitzvah number one. So even though this thing that you've called me about, or that you've emailed me about, or that you've texted me about, um, or that you Facebook messaged me about is a really great mitzvah opportunity. Nonetheless, I need to stick with mitzvah number one because I'm really focused on mitzvah number one. Right? And so much so that I'm not even going to tell you, okay, no worries, I'll do, I'll do this other thing in ten minutes or in five minutes or in an hour. Right now I'm going to say I'm really focused on mitzvah number one. Right? Patur, I'm exempt. I'm not even going to talk about when I might get to mitzvah number two because I'm so focused on mitzvah number one. I want to talk about when and to what extent and how, that might be also a Jewish thing to say or a halakhic thing to say. Um, and I'll add to that a little bit. I'll add this sort of secular layer onto it. Um, so in the, uh, the article that I gave you guys from the New York Times, um, which is called The Busy Chat, um, and it, talk, it just talks about how, um, I thought it was a very sort of fun and funny and relevant article when I first read it. Um, he's talking about the fact that everybody nowadays is busy. Um, and if you're not busy, you feel like you have to be busy. Um, and so everyone makes themselves busy. Um, and even kids are busy, etc. Um, and it makes people feel important. But um, the part that I wanted to focus on for a second, um, on page four, I think these pages are numbered. Um, are they, they're like numbered sort of at the bottom. It's just page four of the New York Times article. So again, I would have marked it up if our um, technology in the office had been at all behaving today. Um, but the, this paragraph in the middle of the page that starts, idleness is not just a vacation. Do you guys see that? Okay. So I'm going to read that to you, and then I want you to tell me what you think. Um, not all of it, though. Idleness is not just a vacation, an indulgence, or a vice. It is as indispensable to the brain as vitamin D is to the body, and deprived of it, we suffer a mental affliction as disfiguring as rickets. The space and quiet that idleness provides is a necessary condition for standing back from life and seeing it whole, for making unexpected connections and waiting for the wild summer lightning strikes of inspiration. It is paradoxically necessary to getting any work done. So it's not exactly the same as doing only one mitzvah, right? Because it's sort of implying that you're not doing anything. But what, but this idea of kind of like mental space um, is something that I we're going to want to think about as we consider the idea of not multitasking, of applying this rule. So before we see the halachic sources, what do you guys think of that idea? Um, do you think that's true that you need like to do nothing for a while to sort of be able to focus? Yeah. focused, when you're not focused at all, in order to help you focus later on. 
And that's like, I, I, wanna, I want us to have this question in the back of our mind because the sources aren't going to directly address it, but I think it's interesting. Yeah, Helene. One of the things that's so striking to me about, uh, and I'm, I'm just old enough that I'm not as attached to my phone as people 10 years younger than me, <laughs> um, is that if you're constantly responding to a stimulus, when do you ever process what's coming in? You're always responding. There is no time to internalize and process and make connections with things. So you have to have some quiet time where things sink in and they connect to other parts of who you are and other thoughts you have. Yeah, that's interesting. I have a piece from Rev Cook elsewhere that I feel like speaks to that. Um, yeah, so I mean that's really, it's it's a, you could see it as like a separate but related concept, right? I always like when I talk about German myths, it's focused on one thing at a time, right? This article is saying sometimes you need to not focus on anything, right? Um, and the reason, what? How do you do that? How do you do that? Great. So I think that's a question, right? Like how do you ever, we're going to talk about that, how do you ever sort of give yourself that mental space to not even focus on anything? Um, but. But again, what I thought about, what I thought was interesting about this article is that um, he's basically arguing, though not using these words, that you need some sort of mental space, almost as like preparation, and only then can you really be able to, you'll have these like lightning flashes of inspiration, and then you'll sort of come back and be refocused, and you'll have what we're going to call, I'm going to use these words somewhat interchangeably. No worries, you're here, right? The erasers don't always work on these four I'll call it Kavana or Kavana or Liba. I just wanted to find these terms really quickly. Um, so, Kavana, anyone want to give a definition for that? Intention. Okay, intention. That's, that's how we're going to talk about it, right? Meaning, you could quibble about how exactly to define that, but I'm going to agree with you that kavanah for our purposes today is intention. How about kavanah halev? Okay, directing your heart, or so it's direction of your heart, direction or intention of your heart. What does that even mean? What is it that you have intention for? 
Well, the intention, I would say, is to know how to manage to go into the right direction. I'm not managing. Okay, so what, is, what does that mean in terms of the mitzvah? It means that you know how to do the mitzvah? Well, yeah, I think it means to go. Your intention is, is knowing how to how to do it, how to manage it, how to cope it in that correct way, and give your full self becoming fully involved. Ah, okay, so that's really two different things, right? Meaning, I felt like, or I'm, maybe you sort of meant them as one, but to me it sounds like two. Right? One is sort of knowing how to do the mitzvah, that was kind of the first part of what you said. And the second was something about your full self becoming involved. Which to me are not the same thing, right? I might know how to, like, you know, physically accomplish a mitzvah purpose, let's say build a sukkah. Okay, that's a mitzvah, right? So I might know how to build a sukkah, but that's not the same as saying that, like, my soul is going to become absorbed in the process. Okay, what else can you tell me about Kavana, what you think is going to entail? Yeah, Elizabeth? I think so, I mean, the, um, we say the Shema is a very good example. Yeah, it is a good example. It makes a difference. Like, it's not just about quiet and lower self, but if you have voices in your head while you're trying to concentrate and you're not, you know when you fully connect to it and the power of it. And I think when the times that one can truly connect to it are the times when I would say I'm successful uh -huh. at exercising Okay, great. And what do you think? You're connecting to the Shema or you're connecting to God or both? Well, it's more than both of those. Okay. I think. And that makes a huge difference. Okay, so I'm going to write both. Okay, you're connecting to God, you're connecting to the Shema, right? Um, and I said that's related to, but I'll put separately what you said about becoming absorbed in it. Okay? Anyone else want to contribute to our definition of Kavana? Our working, still workshop definition? Yeah, sure. Um, I guess to me it means like being really, really present. Mm -hmm. And so tell me a little bit more about that. If you're very present, then what impact does that have? What effect? Yeah, like yeah. what does that sort of mean? Can you unpack that a little more? Sorry, what does it mean? Yeah, what, what does it mean to sort of be present to our mitzvah? I think that you're like being mindful, so you're just really aware of what it's doing, what you're doing, what it's doing to you, and you're not distracted. <laughs> okay, okay. I'll put that also. Not distracted. Okay, so that of course takes us right back to this rule, right? If you're thinking all the time about that, that other mitzvah that you could also be doing now, or that you could be doing instead now, that might serve as a form of distraction. Okay, anything else we need to add to that kind of that? Good working definition. Um, so, knowing, first of all, knowing how to do the mitzvah, right? That you you have intention, you have direction, you have like set yourself on a course to do this mitzvah. Like that is, you know what you're doing, and that is what you're doing now. Um, some kind of connection to God or the mitzvah, right? Something that's a really like sort of deep feeling, becoming absorbed, so feeling like you're focused on it to the exclusion of all else which is part of being present and mindful, right? And really sort of not distracted at all, but really focused on what you're doing. 
basically all the things that you really can't be in, like I said, that's what you were talking about, also about like sort of phones, right? All the things you really can't be to and really the stimuli coming at you at the same time, right? Maybe, maybe Kavanaugh um, sort of preclude, or maybe, yeah, maybe Kavanaugh sort of precludes those things. Okay, so now look at the other set of sheets that I gave you. Um, which hopefully are in more or less the right order, sorry. Um, so let's jump right in. Um, who wants to read the first source? The source from Deuteronomy. Great, Alisa. In Yeah, whatever language you choose. Okay. Uh, this day the Lord thy God commands you to do these statutes and ordinances. You shall therefore observe and do them with all your heart and all your soul. Okay, great. Um, so you might be familiar with this verse or other similar verses because this is a sentiment that gets repeated a number of times in the Torah. Um, so what do you think it means to perform these commandments with all your heart and all your soul? What is that? What is that telling you? Right? Why not just say you have to perform the commandments? Make sure you hit every single one. Giving your full heart, your full concentration on any out of being interrupted Okay, so it's hard, especially when I pressed you with that kind of conversation. Right? It's hard not to connect this idea of all your heart and all your soul to some of these thoughts, right? You're absorbed in it. You're present. Anything else that this, brings, this verse brings to mind for you? in terms of how you perform a mitzvah. Yeah, we could just sort of apply all of our um, definitions from here. Right? But it's interesting because you can kind of, um, you can let this language sort of wash over you. And like I said, it happens. I could have brought you, you know, five or six or ten other verses from the Torah. This happens again and again, right? Not just do the laws, which could would have been enough of an instruction, right, in some ways. Like that would have been hard enough, right, if God had just said repeatedly, um, you know, make sure you fulfill all the commandments, make sure you do all the statutes, ordinances, etc., etc. Um, but again and again, we have this language of the chol v'chol We have it in the Shema itself, which Elizabeth raised earlier, right? We have this language of doing things with all your heart and all your soul. And it kind of seems like if we're going to take that seriously, then we're going to have to make room for some kind of heart and soul connection um, in mitzvot. Uh, and the question is again, so, okay, like, how are we going to do that? And does it really preclude doing more than one thing at a time? So, Kavana comes up um, as a topic for, for serious thought, for discussion in, uh, in Jewish sources a lot. But the, really the bulk or a significant portion of that discussion is focused on Kavana when it comes to prayer. Um, so Elizabeth was kind of giving us this, like, when she started talking about saying Shema. Saying Shema, saying Tzfilah, which is in the, in the language of the Gemara, Tzfilah is always the Amidah prayer, the Shemona Esrei. Um, so when you're praying, when you're saying Shema, that's where the concept of Kavanah most comes up. Um, and I'll say that if you're, if you're interested in this topic, so again, last week when I was talking about this and I said, oh, I'll bring you like some sources, so like easier said than done, there's like so many uh, sources to choose from. Um, and I tried to excerpt as you can see it's not, it's not too long but it's not too short either um, but there's a lot of great sources out there and I, um, I didn't actually have that many books with me in preparing but I'll tell you about a few great ones which is um, uh, Rabbi, maybe it's Rabbi Dr. Avi Kadesh wrote a book called Kavanah 
It might have a subtitle, but I can't remember. Um, and it's full of sources about Kavanaugh, and he shared some of those with me. I didn't use too many of them here because it's a book that's very focused on prayer, but it's a great book. Um, and uh, his name is Rabbi, but he might be Rabbi Doctor, I can't remember, Avi Kadish. His last name is K-A-D-I-S-H. Um, it's a fairly recent book. Um, Rabbi Avi Weiss, also in his book about Tila, has written um, about Kavanaugh a little bit, and he was very gracious and shared sources and translations with me um, in advance of this. But, um, and, and there's a lot of other writing out there also, um, really because the question of, uh, of what you're doing when you're praying is such a compelling question, and one that you really, at a certain point in a Jewish life, you really have to answer that question, like what you're doing in prayer and how focus works. So this is one of my favorite sources about Kavanah, or not, as the case may be. Um, source number two, this is from the Talmud Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem Talmud. Um, and it's, like, at its core, it is actually a Gemara about Kavanah, about having intentions specifically in prayer. Uh, but listen to what is actually said. If you're praying and you find yourself in the middle of Shomea Tzilah, okay, the blessing of one God hears our prayers, you guys know where that is? It's kind of, it's, it's kind of towards the middle end, right, really towards the end of the Shemona Esrei. So, Shemona Esrei, Amidah, 18 blessings, but it's really 19 blessings, but, um, but Shomea Tzilah is, is really, you've gotten pretty far if you've gotten to Shemea Tzilah. So all of a sudden, I love this language, Matzatmo, you found yourself suddenly, who knows how you got there. Ever start driving and have this happen to you, right? Like, all of a sudden, you're somewhere, right? So you got yourself somehow to Shemea Tzilah. So like, okay, fine, probably you had intent up until then, but like, the implication is like, we don't really, you don't, you don't have any memory of having said those first number of blessings. If you were praying and you didn't have kavanah, you didn't direct your heart. So if you know that going back and praying again will enable you to have kavanah, like, oh, this time I forgot to focus, but if I do it again, I'd for sure focus. So then you can go back to the beginning. But if you feel like, you know what, it's not going to help. <laughs> I am not going to have focus no matter what I do, then don't bother. Just finish till the end. Um, and then the best part, the rabbis start talking about like what they do when they're davening. Uh, what actually happens inside their head. So Shmuel says, I count chick. And Rabbi Bun Amar says, um, I count bricks. Right? Meaning, whatever, whatever like random thoughts are going through your head during davening, even though you know they shouldn't be because you should be focused on the prayers. So this is the rabbis telling you about their random thoughts during davening. It's, you know, it's kind of like um, a sympathetic moment for the rabbis, right? You can't focus on all the worry, neither could they. Um, and then I think the best part, uh, I'm grateful to my head, says so Matne, because whenever I get to the part of the Shemonesh that says, my head just kind of bows, like, on its own. Like, I don't even have to think about it, right? Basically saying, like, thank God, I'm used to dominating enough that I am now on autopilot, and it all works out. Somehow I make it to the end of the Shemona you know, and, and there I am. Um, which is, like I said, a Gemara both about Kavanah and not about Kavanah, but speaks to this challenge of having intention, um, I'd say for anything, um, but particularly in prayer, which is, you can yourself enumerate the difficulties of prayer. It's long, it's the same each day, or it's more or less the same each day, right? It's a, it's a fixed liturgy. Um, we don't, 
uh, have a physical presence of God, right? We don't, we don't sing these prayers worship idols. It's not like we have something physical in front of us to say, like, this is where my prayers are going, right? I think that's also really the language that comes in. But, right, you have to direct your heart. But where are you directing your heart to? Hey, east to Jerusalem, yeah. Where else might you be directing your heart to? Yeah. Towards God, right? It's, a, it's an amorphous thing, all of it, right? You're directing your heart, but it's interesting to note there's no, um, there's no object there, right? You're, you're just directing your heart, right? To the best place possible. We sort of trust you to figure that out. Um, so, all these difficulties of having kavanah, right? Of doing all these things during prayer. And let's again say what they are. And so what is difficult to do during prayer? So I think this Gemara speaks to the fact that it's hard to be present, it's hard to be mindful, and not to be distracted. It's hard to be fully absorbed in prayer. Right? Really, the meaning of prayer. It's hard maybe to always feel connected to God. How about this one? How about the knowing how to do it? So that is interesting. That we seem comfortable right? Meaning, they've got it down, right? Like, they're not messing up. Although, it's interesting that the Carol Gemara talks a lot about messing up, the Carol Gemara bubbling. So you're not messing up, but if someone were to, like, stop you and shake you, right, and say, what are you doing, right? What would, like, what do you think this guy's answer would be? This guy who's, like, just grateful to his head that he does. It's hard to say, right? It's sort of like an open question. Right? So this one of knowing how to do it, which sounds like sort of the simple one for Kavana, like, Minimally, I should at least know what I'm doing, right? Not always. There are mitzvot that we sometimes maybe do without even thinking about it, right? I think that's part of what this Gemara speaks to. He doesn't, because he's really good at it. autopilot the same as knowing how to do it. Yeah, exactly. It's autopilot the same as knowing how to do it, meaning your body knows how to do it. Right? That's really what he's saying. My body has, like, what do they call it? Like muscle memory, right? His body knows how to say Shemona Esra. But is it, is it penetrating to his head? Is it penetrating to his heart? Again, if you shook him out of this like reverie and said, "What are you doing right now?" Would you be able to give a really coherent answer? Um, so all these things tie into Kavanah, and this is why it's a challenge. But I want to be able to talk because this is a lot of great resources for talking about this about prayer. I want to be able to talk about this um, not just in terms of prayer, but in terms of mitzvot in general, because in terms of prayer. You know, for sure, all these things apply, right? And for sure, you see why it's important, right? Prayer seems sort of meaningless, sort of empty, if you don't have connection to God or the mitzvah, being absorbed, being mindful, right? Like, what's the point of prayer? If you don't have some connection to God, then what are you doing when you're praying? If you don't have some connection, I won't even say to God, because I feel like maybe that's limiting for some people. If you don't have some sort of real um, spiritual experience, how's that? then what are you really doing when you pray? So prayer is kind of like the example par excellence, but I want to talk about it more broadly also in terms of other mitzvot. Um, so look at source number three, um, the mission in Rosh Hashanah, and hopefully this didn't get cut off on your sheet. It's a little bit online, but not too bad. Um, so does someone want to read this mission in the language of your choosing? Could be English or Hebrew. Anyway. Okay, go for it. One who goes into a cistern, a barrel, or a jar, if he heard the sound of the shofar, he has fulfilled his obligations. If he hears the sound of an echo, he has not fulfilled his obligations. Similarly, one who was passing behind the synagogue, or whose house was adjacent to a synagogue, and heard the sound of the shofar, or the sound of the scroll, of Esther, 
If he directed his heart, he has fulfilled his obligation. But if not, he has not fulfilled his obligation. Okay, you can pause there um, for a second. So just let's focus on that sentence you just read. So tell me, tell me what this person is doing. Like Mishnayot. I always like to say our stories because the mission is case law. So tell me the story of this mission. What happened? He didn't go to synagogue. He did not he go to the synagogue, right? Where is he actually? He's either home, but it was in hearing distance of the synagogue, or he was walking by the synagogue doing something else at the time when the shofar was being called. Okay, so let's let's pick one or the other scenario for a second. So let's say he's at home. Because um, this actually used to happen to me when I lived in Jerusalem. I lived across the street from a shul, and as long as the doors to my mirpeset, my balcony, were open, I could actually hear all of davening um, on Friday nights. So you're home and you're, let's say, setting the table. Right? So the thing that you're doing, right? Knowing how to do it, right? The thing that you're doing is actually setting the table. But he overhears, right? What are my choices here? Either shofar or or Mikilatas too, right? Both things which you have an obligation to hear. Okay? So, has he fulfilled his obligation or not? What does it depend on? What does it depend on? Whether or not he's fulfilled his obligation. Whether he listened to Good. Kivenli right? Whether he directed his heart. Okay? So, in terms of what he's doing, right? Like the knowing how to do it piece, he's not exactly acing that piece. Right? Because I know how to go here at the shofar. I usually go to shul, right? And that will take care of that. Uh, right? That's like the best way if, you're, if your plan um, is to go here shofar or to go here Megillah. The best thing to do is to actually go to a synagogue or go to a place where they are doing that. But that is not what happened. This person was doing something else, was perhaps just walking behind the synagogue. Um, and yet, it's like, up, oh, they're about to go shofar, up, they're about to read Megillah. If he directs his heart, so what is he directing his heart to do? Where would you put it on that list? Mm-hmm. Present and mindful. Yeah, and making a connection. Or he decides, like, oh, like this could just be noise, right? Because I am actually doing this other thing. Walking, setting the table. I'm actually, the thing I'm doing is actually this other thing. But he decides to stop and be present in this moment. Um, yeah. Sometimes for Yom Shoah or uh, Yom Hazikaron in Israel, yeah. people stop on the highway, not and to they hear it, not hear it if they keep driving, but because uh, they want to get connected to it, they want to be absorbed. That's interesting. I actually really like that analogy. It, it works here, right? So you stop and show that you are. Although it's interesting, it doesn't exactly say he has to stop, right? That's that's not yeah. interesting, right? In fact, it kind of seems like he doesn't have to stop. But you're right; they do it as a sign of showing or as a way to show that they are actually directing themselves to focus on this. Right, so he decides to focus um, in this scenario, so then he can, he can fulfill the obligation, right? meaning only then, which implies that had he not decided to be Mechav ben Libo, had he not decided to focus his heart, he would not actually have fulfilled the obligation, which raises the question, which the next couple of sources um, discuss, about whether the question, the, the phrase, which we'll see in a few places, is this one. The question is whether mitzvot 
require intention. Because this word we've defined extensively, right? This word is require or need, right? And this word is vote. So the question, or the, the way it's phrased, is can we phrase it in the negative or the positive? I put it up in the positive. If it's what means that in order to fulfill and it's that in order to say, I'll go back to my to-do list, in order to check it off your to-do list and say, yep, I did that one, right? You need to have kavanah, you need to have some or all of these things, okay? Um, and if you didn't have kavanah, then you did not get to check it off your to-do list. So that guy was wandering around in the alleyway behind the synagogue and hears every single word of Megillah Esther, hears every single word of the book of Esther, if he did not have Kavanah to fulfill his obligation? No. According to this, according to this Mishnah, it seems like no, because he didn't keep any book. He might have heard it. He might have heard it totally clearly, but the fact that he did not have Kavanah means that he didn't fulfill the obligation. I would hear with me and be like, you're not so sure. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Right. I think that's a great question, right? Because Elizabeth told us earlier, like, or the way you made it sound, Elizabeth, you can exactly say this, is that, like, sometimes you have this moment of connection and sometimes you don't, and it's hard to, like, predict that, right? Or sort of um, ensure that, right? So I think that's true, right? In which case, what do you, how are we going to translate Kidem Bo for this purpose? Or how do you want to translate Kavanah so that, like, it works out into a more predictable thing? So then we have to say, maybe it's not a connection to God, because maybe that's like too much to ask as like a baseline for fulfilling the mitzvah. Um, but, and maybe also coming, becoming absorbed, but maybe that's like too much to ask. Think of being present, being mindful, not being distracted, knowing how to do it, and also like, you know, like having this awareness, yes, this is what I'm doing now, right? If you tap me on the shoulder, I'd be able to say, this is the thing that I'm doing and nothing else. Um, maybe all of those can tie into this meaning of Kavanah. And that's why I wanted you to define it earlier. Because yeah, if you say that it's a baseline, if you say like, you haven't fulfilled the missile, like, that's a pretty extreme thing to say. I have to, I, I feel like the, the shofar example, I guess that's the one I probably should be more connected to because we're about to get there, right, on the calendar. Um, but sometimes the Mugilata Stare example feels um, a lot stronger to me, right? See, actually, your, your obligation is to hear every word of the Megillah. It's like, not so easy. It's a long story. There's a lot of words there, and people are loud. So I feel like if you actually heard every word of that Megillah, you should for sure get credit. You should for sure get to check it off of your to-do list. Okay, but this is saying no. Only if there's coming out, only if there's intention. Maybe just the very minimal intention of you know, knowing what you're doing. Right? Like at this moment, I am listening to Megillah. But I don't want to rule out the possibility that it would be better or desirable if you also felt a connection to God at that moment, if you also were absorbed in that mitzvah, if you also were truly present and mindful and not distracted, right? all those things, which sets a pretty high standard for a baseline for doing mitzvah. And again, it becomes interesting if you play it out with different mitzvah, because instinctively some seem to require more concentration, like maybe your example of the Shema, and some seem to require less. So let's go a little farther and look at some other examples. Um, so the Gemara and Rosh Hashanah, this one I excerpted, so I'll read this one. Um, so this is again discussing the, it, it is, it, it goes a little bit far afield, but it starts from the idea of uh, this concept of if someone blew shofar and 
you weren't, it's not like you were present in shofar the shofar blowing, but you overheard shofar blowing, whether or not you can be, um, you can fulfill your obligation. So, they sent a message to Shmuel's father, okay, Shmuel, one of the Amoraim, one of the rabbis in the time of the Gemara. If you were compelled to eat matzah, or one who was compelled to eat matzah has fulfilled his obligation. Um, okay, you have to like mentally set this up in some way that makes sense to you. Someone forced you to eat matzah. Presumably this is on what holiday? Pesach. And on Pesach you have an obligation to eat matzah. And only when you eat matzah can you fulfill that obligation, right? That's an obligation. So you were, you were forced to eat matzah. We're going to see this um, inside in a minute. Um, seems like they think you fulfilled your obligation. Okay, and then they talk about who actually, Gemara talks about who actually forced him. Um, one possibility is who's compelled by a demon. We'll leave that one aside for a second. Because um, in the Gemara, when you're compelled by things, sometimes the things that you're compelled by are demons because there are demons in the Gemara, um, but not so much in real life, but in their real lives, there were also Persians. So Rav Ashi says he was compelled by Persians, because the Gemara isn't written in a Persian context, so those were the non-Jews at the moment. So somehow, Persians, for some reason, force him to eat matzah. But it's not like the guy sat down and was like, I am going to now eat matzah. I'm going to fulfill my obligation to matzah. I'm going to connect to God. I'm going to do the mitzvah. I'd like to be fully present in the moment right now. But that's not what happened. Rather, someone sat him down and said, I don't know, eat this matzah or I'll shoot you. Which sounds a little far-fetched, but, you know, they, they forced him to eat matzah. Um, and in that case, the Gemara starts by saying, you, were still, you still fulfilled your obligation to eat matzah. Um, and Rava says, this implies that one who stands the shofar for song purposes has fulfilled his obligation. Okay, so a parallel, in theory, parallel scenario from the shofar example that we started with. You, were, you, you and your friend are somewhere. Your friend knows how to blow shofar, but your friend is simply playing songs on the shofar. Think it can't be done? I don't know. I assume it's like an instrument like any other. So you could play a song, right? You could be playing hatikva on your shofar. Um, so like it could, in theory, work out that like you have some of the right sounds. So Rava says, well, if you can, if being forced to eat matzah, and you didn't want to do it, you didn't sit down to do it, whatever, but you were forced to eat matzah, you fulfill your obligation. So too, if the guy next to you is just playing some songs on his shofar, and you happen to listen to them. Um, Rosh Hashanah, right. Um, yeah, so it's a complicated scenario. Um, so, so the Gemara says, isn't that obvious? Like, why, why would you need both examples? If one works, the other one should work. Um, and the Gemara says, In the case of the eating of matzah, what's the commandment the Torah gives? What does it say in the Torah about eating matzah? Anyone know? It's like pretty baseline. It says eat matzah. Right? Okay? Okay, and there's some other stuff about not eating chametz that like complicates the whole picture, but bottom line, what the Torah says is eat matzah. Okay, so the Gemara says, well, that one, the Torah actually says eat matzah. It doesn't actually say in the Torah, blow shofar. Okay, that's not, you won't find that explicit directive in the Torah. What you find instead in the Torah is a discussion of Rosh Hashanah. Discussion is maybe too strong, but you find some verses about Rosh Hashanah, and it refers to it as Yom Zichron Shuah. Right, a day of remembrance of Trua, 
Do you guys know what truah is? Do we have a working English definition? I'm trying to think of the best. Right, it's the, it's the shofar sound. How's that? Okay, so it's a day of the shofar sound, which is not the same as saying blow shofar. Um, so what's the difference between, in terms of kavanah, what's the difference between saying imata Versus, um, remember true What's the difference in terms of how can that work? Do you think? I'm sorry, what did you say? True is the sound of the shofar. I'm sorry, I sometimes think so much in Hebrew that I hear. I will read you the verse in English. Um, good thing about teaching right after Rabbi Silver. There's always a Tanakh here. Um, Leviticus 23, 24. Um, okay, here we go. Um, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the Israelite people thus, in the seventh month on the first day of the month, you shall observe complete rest, a sacred occasion commemorated with loud blasts. Kind of like that also. So, what's the difference again in terms of how you think about Kavanah? What's the difference between Imata versus commemorate with love or remember? Where, even just in terms of your body, like where are these different things happening? One happens in your digestive system and the other happens in your head. Okay. One happens in your digestive system and the other happens in your head. Okay. We're going to say they're just two different holidays. Okay, they're two different holidays, but in terms of their relationship to covenant. This is physical versus mental. Okay, great. Physical versus mental, which is another version of what you're saying, but I like that summary. Right, so this is physical. And that's what the Gemara seems to be saying. You need both examples, right? Again, the Gemara discusses one case of being forced to eat matzah and one case of um, you know, sort of wandering by a shofar blowing, right? Or hearing your friend play a song which happens to be played on the shofar. Right? So why are these not exactly the same? Because when the tourists eat matzah, like at the end of the day, you find like it would be nice to connect to God, it would be nice to be absorbed in the mitzvah, etc. But at the end of the day, have you eaten the matzah or have you not eaten the matzah? You've eaten the matzah. You've eaten the matzah, you've eaten the matzah, right? It's finished, right? It's gone, and it's inside of you. And so you can kind of point to that verse of the Torah and say, God, you wanted me to accomplish something, and I accomplished something. I did did a physical act, right? This was physical, right? I did a physical act, I ate the matzah, and it's my digestive system, right? And so I've done it. As opposed to commemorate or remember with loud blasts, right? If, if you didn't seem like if it didn't happen, if there was no mental connection, right? Missing these pieces, connection, absorption, being present, right? Missing those pieces, it seems like this one is just kind of empty. Because this one doesn't say anything about physically, it's not about your auditory sense, right? This one maybe has to do with like your taste buds or your digestive system. This one is not physical. Okay? And the Gemara says, so that's why the Gemara has to speak about both cases. Um, because 
wanted to look at this part of the Gemara also. Um, the Haimit Asik Ba'almahu. Okay? The, what the Torah requires vis a vis Rosh Hashanah, vis a vis Shofar blowing, is that you have some kind of mental connection. You remember, you commemorate with a loud blast. By the way, what do you think you're commemorating? For Rosh Hashanah? Okay, creation might be a good one. It's interesting, right? The reason I asked you that question is because if you don't know the answer, right, or if you're not sure, or if you have to think about it a little bit, which I think we all would, right, then got right to have come on out for this. You really need to know something about what you're remembering or what you're focusing on. Right, it's a trickier kind of mitzvah. Um, you need to kind of check in on that because if you're going to remember or commemorate, you have to be remembering and commemorating something. The Torah says you need to do that, and in the case again, bring you back to the case that's given here. So this case is you're sitting next to your friend who happens to be playing like their favorite Beatles tunes on the shofar, right? So that is a case for Gemara says, of what's called mitasek. Um, you were simply, how did I translate here? Um, I didn't translate it actually. Uh, he's merely mitasek, he's merely um, busy. Busy, but not with it. And I want to put I want to make sure you guys get to see this word. This is its own halakhic category. Mita <coughs> asek. Yeah, it means um, it means busy or involved. Um, and this word is its own halakhic category. So when you, I'll use it in context first, and then I'll take it out of context. When you're sitting next to the guy who's just playing a tune on his shofar, what are you doing? Someone give me an example of what you might be doing. You can make it up. It's fine. What are you doing? You're not listening. Except you're 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 kind of listening. Except you're not you're focused on chauffeur blowing. Yeah. Okay, you're reading the newspaper, right? You're reading the newspaper. You're playing cards. You're thinking about how you need to go here, chauffeur. Right? That we can't also. You're really you're you're the point there is something else, right? And it so happens that he blows chauffeur. Okay, that's what mitasek means. So he's just mitasek, and so the Gemara concludes. Alma Kasavar Rava, Mitzvot Ein Trichot Kavana. And so this means, the Gemara sort of sums it up for you, that Rava believes, Rava who said that the, the shofar blowing of your friend is going to work even though he's just playing it soon, this means Mitzvot Ein Trichot Kavana. Okay, the opposite form of this, right? Mitzvot <coughs> do not require Kavana. Okay? That's Rava's conclusion. In other words, Right, at the end of the day, have you done it or have you not done it? Did you hear the shofar? You heard the shofar. Did you read the masa? You read the masa. Okay, you weren't thinking about doing it. You weren't connected to God. You weren't absorbed. You weren't present or mindful. Nonetheless, you have accomplished the thing that you didn't set out to do, right? But it was on your to-do list and you should have been setting out to do, right? And you've accomplished that thing. Um, that's about the position. But see, right, because I set it up for you for all of this, right, why that's like a kind of complicated thing to say, right? It really means, hey, I don't have to actually, like, sit down to the Seder team, my masa. I can just kind of, like, step it down whenever, right? I don't really have to go to shul and think about repentance and creation and all those things, right? I could just kind of be in the same room with somebody who happens to be playing around with the shofar, and that would count. So it's a controversial position. Um, and these aspects, this side. Um, even if you don't read the Hebrew or like connect to the Hebrew, but you might notice that 
this is very much the same as this. Osek and Misosek. Um, and Misosek is its own halakhic category. It comes up most often with relation to the laws of Shabbat. Um, and I'm going to tell this to you with a digression so you can pull this model in also when we ultimately stop and consider what Kevin has going to mean for us. Let's say that you Okay, so let's say that you turn on the light on Shabbat. Okay, let's assume, let's accept for the purposes of this class that turning on lights on Shabbat is forbidden. Um, let's say, we'll pretend that electricity is like fire, right, which some people think, even though it's probably not really. Um, so it's like as though you've lit a fire because you've turned on the light on Shabbat. Okay, if you did that and said to yourself, I'm now going to turn on this light on Shabbat, um, so you've transgressed, right? That, that's overa vera, that's like, you turn on the line of Shabbat, you weren't supposed to turn on the line of Shabbat, the halacha would view that as a transgression. What if you um, forgot that it was Shabbat and you flipped on the light switch? You forgot that it was Shabbat. You forgot that it was Shabbat. You're, you're, you woke up, it's early in the morning, and you're thinking it's Monday, and you turn on the light. So that's not because why? Because you were not mindful. Okay, you weren't mindful, right? You forgot. Um, and that is a category we call shogeg. Like you did it by accident, you did it in a state of forgetfulness. What if you were moving a chair, okay, which is a permissible Shabbat activity, according to even the strictest halakhic. Um, otherwise, you're moving like a big armchair kind of along the wall. You can sort of imagine it with that wall if you have a light switch is like low enough, right? Um, and you were moving the chair, and as you were moving the chair, it hit the light switch, and the light switch turned off. That was an accident, right? There was no forgetting. You didn't forget that it was Shabbat, and you didn't even forget that you're not allowed to turn out lights on Shabbat or turn on lights or whatever. You just, you were totally doing something else, like you were involved in something else, and the light switch just kind of happened to turn on. So that's an even, from the perspective of Shabbat law, that's an even, um, I guess, a more lenient category than just forgetting. Because not, there was no, no, nothing was going on in your mind at all that had to do with lights or Shabbat. Right? You were doing a permitted activity, you were doing something else entirely, your focus was on that, and this other thing just kind of happened. That's means aspect, um, and because, interesting tie into our topic, because the rabbis understand that the classical Shabbat prohibition, the true Shabbat prohibition, is against what we call Malacha, labor, but specifically malachat machshevet, thoughtful labor. And there has to be a thought process involved in order for it to be a classical Shabbat prohibition. If you did it thoughtlessly, on some level you didn't really violate Shabbat. And the same thing is going on here. You're mitasek, right, that's what the Gemara tells you. So you were, you were really totally, your, your mind was involved in something else. Um, and so you um, you weren't you weren't thinking about that act at all, right? Goes back to what you said earlier about knowing knowing how to do it, right, or knowing what you're doing. But you didn't even know what you were doing. You weren't focused on the fact that this guy had the shofar at all. It's like it's an additional step removed from kavana. Right? Not only did you not have positive intention, like you weren't you weren't having like the spiritual moment that Elizabeth described, right? But you weren't even thinking about doing that thing. And it sort of just happened to you, right? The the hearing of the shepherd just happened to you. So you might think that's not a way to be 
to fulfill a mitzvah. Rava says it is, but obviously this is a very um, uh, tendentious point, right? Not everybody would agree that you fulfilled the mitzvah if you did it this way, in this way where you were you totally weren't going to do that act at all, right? You didn't even see yourself as being involved in that act. Um, so he's saying it's mitzvah, you don't get credit. For it. He's saying you do. Rava thinks you do get credit. Right? Even though, yeah, he thinks you do, right? You might have thought that you don't, um, because this truat, right? Meaning, what the the distinction that Mary said enough for you is this one. Like I could understand, I could understand. It's easier for me to say that doing this one without intention still counts, because at the end of the day, you ate the mask, right? This one, like Mary says, this one is like very tricky to say that having no intention still works, that just hearing the guy playing the shofar still exempts you, or still fulfills your mitzvah of shofar. Rav says, no, 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 it does, even though he was not doubt that, even though he was thinking about something else at the time. Julie, you want to ask? Is there still a question about this rabbi? Because, like, there's so many, or not so many, there's so many rabbis in the world, and it's like, how do you, like, how do you know which opinion to take more seriously? Great, great question, great question. We're going to talk about that. So, it's not so easy, because the Gemara is not a book of law. Um, when I teach, I don't anymore. When I have taught in the past, the high school, beginner's high school girl Gemara, girl Gemara here, uh, not beginner's, but like the intro level or whatever, um, I always ask them to keep a running list of all the things the Gemara is not. It's very hard to say what the Gemara is. Uh, like a very, there's no genre invented in the English language that encompasses what the Gemara is. It's easier to say what the Gemara is not. So one thing the Gemara is not is a rule book, and this is why, because it's really hard to say. So I'll give you two answers. One is, we're going to talk about it in a sec, because like I said, this is a very controversial rule. But the other thing I would just say, just sort of for your background knowledge, is that Rava is like a big deal. Um, and even more so than this being a big deal, like this a little bit seems to be the bottom line of the Gemara. You can't always tell what the bottom line is in the Gemara, but sometimes, but, but sometimes you can. Like if the Gemara attacks an idea or doesn't attack an idea, and it kind of seems like the Gemara is willing to take this idea and run with it, which for those of us who think that these ideas are attractive, connection to God, being absorbed, being present, that's like a little bit disturbing, right? But, but nonetheless. Um, okay, I'm going to skip the Rashi's here, so I don't totally run out of time. Um, I basically just explained this anyway. Um, and just, I wanted you to get the sense, right, in case the, the chauffeur blowing example felt like too kind of can't connect to that one, I wanted you to say, see that it comes up in a few other contexts. Um, source number eight is, in, is the mission in Brachot, so the fact that the source speaks directly to your point. Um, the Mishnah gives the following story in Brachot. Um, you were reading from the Torah, and it became time to say Shema. And the, by the way, coincidentally, the piece that you're reading from the Torah at that very moment happens to be the Shema. Does that make sense to you? Right, there's a crossover. The Shema is printed in the Torah. So you're reading Torah. The thing that you're doing, if someone stops you and asks you what are you doing, is reading Torah. But at that very moment, the obligation to say Shema kicks in. Sorry, source number eight. It might be on the back, or it might be on the next page. Do you not have a full set? Here. The, the, the copier wasn't working earlier, so I'll give you this one. You have it? You do have it. Sorry, we had some technical issues in the office this morning. Um, so, so that's the case, okay? You're reading Torah. The part of the Torah you're reading is the Shema, and all of a sudden it's time to say Shema. So the Mishnah says if he intends to fulfill the mitzvah, he's fulfilled it. Okay? 
And the Gemara debates whether what that means in terms of mitzvot needing kavanah, whether or not that proves that mitzvot actually need kavanah. Right? The reason, I think, to say that mitzvot need kavanah is sort of obvious. Right? Both we have sources that seem to say it, and also I think we all instinctively want to say that in order to get credit for having done a mitzvah, you have to have something mental going on, right? I mean, come on, people. Um, on the other hand, there seems to be there seem to be sources that say that you don't actually need intention. The Gemara goes back and forth, um, and the third case has to do with um, has to do with blessings over uh, over food. This is in the context of, uh, of Pesach. I'm not going to go into this case right now, um, but basically, um, you know, blessing blessing over food. Um, if you're forced to eat it, or if you're forced to eat one food, and really you're eating another food, or you want to eat another food. Um, oh no, did my sources get cut off? Oh no, so um, look at source number 10. This is the toast vote there. Um, just again, going back to this distinction, um, I'm skipping a little bit, but um, so on source number 10, um, he talks about being compelled by the Persians, and then it says, the Gemara there did not quote our case of eating without intention, as eating does not require as much intention as prayer and blowing shofar. Okay? Tosfot is trying to bring you back to this distinction. Wait a second. Like maybe it's too much to say that all mitzvot require intention or all mitzvot don't require intention. Maybe we should split it up a little bit. Some mitzvot, the ones that take place largely in your mind, largely through mental capacity, do require kavanah. And some mitzvot don't require kavanah. It might be okay to say that you fulfill the mitzvah of eating matzah if you've eaten matzah, Right? But it might not be okay to say that you fulfilled the mitzvah of hearing shofar if you really weren't paying so much attention to the shofar. Um, and in fact, really, since you asked me the question of how we, how we rule in this, I'm going to skip a little bit and we'll talk about that. Um, so, um, the Shulchan Aruch, look at source number 13. Um, so this is a great place to go to answer your question, Julie, right? If you want to know, because right, you're looking at the Gemara and you want to know actually how do we rule. So the Shulchan Aruch was written for that very purpose. So was the Rambam's Mishnah Torah, right? There were a lot of people, um, not just you, right, who looked at the Gemara and felt that, um, like, oh my goodness, I can't possibly um, figure out based on the Gemara what I'm actually supposed to do. So do you have it? Source number 13? Oh, but source number 13 is like written, for me, it's written like at the bottom of the sheet and the actual source is on the next sheet. I can find a few on here. It's just the source is on the next page. Here. So this is, see it says 13, but then the actual source is yeah, I don't really know what the copy was doing. You can take an extra copy. I'm sure. That's okay. There's an extra copy. Because um, once the printer was finally working, it all came out after I started teaching the Um So the Shulchan Aruch gives you bottom line halakha. Not that that's necessarily how everybody practices, but at least it gives you a sense. So he says, Yeshom Rim She'in Mitzvot Shrikot Kavanah. There are those who say that you don't need Kavanah for Mitzvot. The Yeshom Rim She'in Kavanah Lashat Ba'asiyarot HaMitzvot Halakha. And there are those who say that we do need intention, and that is the law. Okay? Meaning, according to the Shulchan Aruch, you do actually need, right, kind of where we wanted this to go, you do actually need intention to fulfill mitzvot. Um, that's what the Shulchan Aruch says. That's how he rules in his code of law. The Shulchan Aruch also wrote 
Rav Yosef Kara, I should say, who wrote the Shulchan Aruch, which is like this very bottom line code of law, also wrote something called the Beit Yosef, which is his commentary on the Torah, which was the earlier law code, and that's much longer and more detailed. So I brought you in source number 14. Again, I'm not going to go through it all inside, but he brings a few different opinions on this, about whether or not mitzvot require intention. And then he says, even one who holds that mitzvot require intention, this refers to something which has an action. But in, oh, sorry, should be does not require intention. This refers to something that has an action. But a mitzvah that is dependent on speech alone certainly requires intention, because the saying of it is internal. In other words, there are definitely those where some people think mitzvot need kavanah, some people think mitzvot don't need kavanah, but there's a healthy group of people who think we should distinguish between this and this. Meaning it's always better to have kavanah. It's always better to have some of these things that you guys spoke about, about connection and absorption, etc. But at the end of the day, if you can point to a physical act that you did, maybe we should always say that you can build up. You ate the matzah, you ate the matzah. But this kind of mitzvah, remembering tru'ah, praying, reciting shema, it's not a physical act, right? At the end of the day, you can't, there's nothing in the world that will show you that you've said shema. It's only about connection. It's only about your mental state and the way that you have been changed by doing this. And if that didn't happen for you, then it's as if you didn't do it. And that's what he's quoting Rabin Yona. That's what Rabin Yona continues to say. If one does not have intention when saying it, one has not done an action, and it is like one who has, done, who has not done any mitzvah activity. According to this position, if you said Shema with no kavanah, it's as though you haven't done anything. Like, what have you really accomplished? You said some words, and there's been, there's been no impact on you, on God, on the world. Nothing has changed. And so you can't be said to have actually fulfilled the obligation. So even though the bottom line rule is that mitzvot do not require, uh, mitzvot, sorry, do require kamana, um, you have to have some intention. Um, and, and maybe, and I would say that's even more true for a mitzvah that does not require a physical act. Um, so if you have to have intention, let's bring it back to here for a second. If you have to have intention, then this rule just makes more sense. It's kind of what you were saying to the plan, I think, right? Like, you have to have intention for a mitzvah, so when you're doing one mitzvah, you can't turn your attention and do another mitzvah because maybe it would disturb your focus. Um, but I think there's something more also that the sources point to, right? because, I mean, this mitzvah that you're doing could be in either of these categories. Right? It could be that the thing that you're doing is eating matzah, which, let's be honest, does not require, it takes, I'd say it this way, it probably takes longer to eat a full sheet of matzah than it does to think about what you're doing. Right? You could think for a few seconds, matzah, affliction, Egypt, right? Like you can free associate your matzah in probably less time than it takes to eat, let's say, one of those big round shimura Okay, So that one maybe requires less focus, and arguably you don't even have to focus on it at all, just the fact that you did it is fine. Um, whereas this one requires more focus. So, so it allows you to have kavanah, but let's be real, right? How much kavanah do you really need for every mitzvah? Um, not, not everything is going to require such full attention for that long that you couldn't actually do something else. Yeah? Long time ago, I studied the mission the first chapter. One of the things that made me smile was that there was a distinction between how much you needed to focus when you were saying Shema versus Shema Esrit. Yeah. I think I remember that if you're up in a tree or you're up on the wall, you have yeah. to get down from the tree or down from the wall 
for the Shemona Esther, that you can stay up in the tree or on the wall for the Shema, which was the implication being, if being up there and worrying about your balance or whatever is going to distract you, for Shimona history. I love that. I love that yeah. it implied. It does imply a distinction. Yeah. Yeah. More right. So some things require more focus. And I want to add to that, right, not only do some things require more focus, but the additional layer that I want to leave you with is um, focus might not just be about um, having only one mitzvah to do. Right? Because there are other things. Right? This rule. Is in a way, it's like a very idealistic rule, right? I'm doing one mitzvah, I'm, I don't have to do the other mitzvah. Great, that sort of imagines a world in which, first of all, the only thing I have to do are mitzvot, right? And if you read that rule as being about kavanah, so somehow magically doing only one mitzvah is going to allow me to have kavanah, even though we all know that's not always how it works. Um, so where did I put this source? Um, sorry, I'm always... I always have everything exactly in order, except for when the copier doesn't obey. So the very last source, source number 15. Um, this is from the Sfat Emmet. Um, so a more Hasidically oriented source. Um, so I should backtrack, and this is, he's talking about Parshat Ba'era. So there's actually a lot of stuff, right? If you think about distraction um, or stress, and so arguably the most stressful time period in, let's say, in biblical history. When, when would you put that? Egypt. Egypt, yeah. I think we can all agree, certainly according to the classical Mepharshim, according to the classical Congress, the most stressful thing that happened to the people, uh, the Jewish people, was being in Egypt. Because we were slaves, we were part, etc. And there's, you could really do, a, if I'd had a fifth class, I would have done just a study of the Egypt story from the perspective of focus and busyness, etc., because there's so much there. And at the beginning of the story, um, well, whatever, it depends where you start the story, but um, Moshe says, people are not going to listen to me. Right? He says, I'm Yerel Satayim, I'm uh, like heavy of tongue or whatever, my mouth is not, my lips don't work well, right? They're not going to listen to me. And in fact, they don't listen to Moshe. And when they don't listen to Moshe, it says, they didn't listen to him. They don't listen to him from shortness of breath and hard work. And Rashi there, I didn't bring you this, it's just background to the source because he, he sort of quotes it. And Rashi there says, like when you're really like stressed and working hard, it's like you can't stop and catch your breath. It is, you can't stop and catch your breath, right? Kotz is like shortness of breath. You can't stop and take a deep breath. I've always thought this is like a beautiful insight that Rashi has. You can't stop and take a breath when you're like super stressed and busy all the time. Um, and so they didn't listen, not felt like they were being difficult and not listening. They like didn't have the physical, mental space to stop and listen because so much was going on for them. So this is a similar idea, commenting also on forget one of those verses there. I think the one where Moshe says, yeah, and he's around the time, right? I'm, I'm heavy of mouth. He says, kar um, This is the essence of kalut. Um, What's the word? Uh, like being exile, right? There we go. This is the essence, the essence of exile, even nowadays. In other words, he's comparing the exile of Egypt to what we go through nowadays. The essence of our exile is that we have no ability to empty ourselves, to forget the silly things, this world's vanity, so that we empty the heart to hear God's word without any distracting thoughts. Thank mm-hmm. you.
for you through that. For me, the time got it started. It was right. The essential problem of exile, according to the Sadhana, is that we don't allow ourselves space, or we, we can't kind of empty our hearts, whatever that exactly means. You can't ever sort of just relax and hear what God is saying. And he's comparing that, right? That's our state of Galut. That's what they were going through in Egypt. Moshe was giving them God's word, but they couldn't stop and listen to it because they were they were slaves, they were working so hard, they were so stressed, etc. Yeah, exactly. And he says, and that's basically what we go through today. That's what the science says. That's what, what's happening to us today. We're so busy, if I'm going to paraphrase it into more modern language, we're so busy doing so many things that we actually can't stop and do the most important thing of all. And um, this is why we mentioned the Exodus before saying Shema. By being redeemed from Egypt, we're emptied of all distractions and become ready to hear God's word. In other words, the whole tefillah process should, if it goes well, allow you to have kavanah because it sort of prepares you to be in this state of being able to accept God's word. Okay, so where we can't focus, we can't have kavanah, exactly when we feel like there's too much happening at once. Okay, which, to me, brings a whole new rationale or a whole new perspective on this rule. Looking at it not from the perspective of like physical capacity, right? How, what could I be doing right now? But in terms of mental capacity, in terms of kavana, the Sad Emmet is telling you, sure, if you are doing one mitzvah, but all you can think about is all these other mitzvah opportunities kind of pressing in on you, weighing down on you, then you're not going to be able to really focus on that one mitzvah. You're going to lose the opportunity, you're going to miss the opportunity to really fulfill that mitzvah, to really focus on God's word because you feel like there's just all this other stuff going on around you, right? Kote Ruach, you're not going to be able to focus on that mitzvah. And so, mitzvah, I mean, he doesn't quote this phrase, but I'm bringing it back to that. You have to be exempt from mitzvah number two, or you have, you have to feel yourself as being exempt from all those other mitzvahs, because you have to be able to focus on that one mitzvah. And, you know, I'm not going to explicitly contradict this, but I'm not going to say this applies to every mitzvah, right? We did see that right, some mitzvot don't need kavanah, or don't need the same kavanah, don't need as much kavanah. Right? But if what you want to do, and if you pick a mitzvah where there has to be focus, which maybe we could say is a mitzvah without an explicit ma'aset, right, without an action. So praying, shema, right, things where your intention, you would say, are truly definitional to the experience. So in that case, you can't, you can't also have the feeling that you need to focus on other things because it's not going to allow you to truly focus. Your heart isn't, in the language of the Sadhana, your heart isn't going to be liberated enough in order to be able to have those experiences. Pausing there for a sec for questions or thoughts. Right, that's kind of the Sadhana's um, point in all of this. Um, and I think that this, so this sort of, um, I won't call it ambiguity, but we have mixed feelings, right? We as sort of like a people, we as a halakhic body at work have sort of mixed feelings about this idea of focus. On the one hand, it's clearly necessary for some mitzvot. Clearly should be there for all mitzvot, but maybe not strictly necessary for all mitzvot. Um, and there's a recognition, I think a real recognition in the sources, that it's not always so easy, right? Sat Emma defines it as the very essence of galut, right? And Certainly, Sadhana would say that we are in a state of Galut, we are in a state of exile. And, and I think it's interesting, I didn't see, um, I didn't have the full book in front of me, just excerpts, but I think it'd be interesting to see if, if the Sadhana would define 
what being redeemed then means. In other words, right, presumably it's the opposite. Um, but I think it's so interesting to try to formulate that exactly what that would look like. Right? Then being redeemed means having the time, having the mental space, having the mental energy to really focus on things. So, so yeah. To go back to the Times article, the idea of a, a lev yeah. a liberated heart, is, is very much like that quote that says, unless you yeah. can be idle and clear your head, yeah. you can't really be busy mm-hmm. with anything. 100%. I, I, um, you know, this, this New York Times article, I think, was like, came to me somehow, like, you know, it was in the list of, like, the most emailed ones or whatever, so, like, sometimes I read those and sometimes I don't, um, and this time I did, and I was sort of, like, skimming, and I got to that paragraph, and I was like, oh my goodness, I learned about this, like, I really felt like that is kind of the same, kind of the same thing, right, maybe not about doing nothing, but that you need to feel like you could have the space to do nothing, right, you need to not feel like everything is sort of pressing down on you in order to be able to focus on that one mitzvah that you are doing, Um, which I think is really, um, if we were to take this seriously and if we were to take this rule seriously, it would be kind of like a paradigm shift, I think, at least for some of us, but I would argue probably for many of us, in terms of how we think about life and particularly our Jewish lives. Um, Because, um, you know, as I've said a few times, right, Osek the Mitzvah, Pater, Minha Mitzvah, so... Uh, we already saw last week, for those of you who weren't here, I can send you this verse if you want, that there, we definitely don't apply this rule. As a practical matter, we don't apply this rule across the board. We don't always say that if you're busy doing one mitzvah, you have to stop. You have to not stop to do another mitzvah. We're just, we're not prepared to go there. There are scenarios in which we don't. We're going to talk about a very interesting test case next week, and I'll talk about that in a second. Um, but even if we're not always willing to exactly go there, Right? I think that this deeper message about what it implies, about focus, right? what it says about Kavanah, is very important. Because it kind of means that, okay, like, yes, there are so many mitzvot, right? all 613 of them, and so many opportunities to do them. And I think I mentioned this either last class or the time before, but I think also that opportunities are very different nowadays. Like the, the classical, um, the Farshim, the classical commentaries always use this language of mitzvah habali adil, literally a mitzvah that sort of comes to hand. Right? Like, all of a sudden this mitzvah opportunity presents itself. It's like mitzvah opportunities, it's just with communication being so much easier and faster, your communication on mitzvah opportunities is also easier and faster. So you get emails, and you get phone calls, and you get text messages, all, right, all these different ways that people say to you, organizations say to you, right? here's how you could help the soldiers in Israel, here's how you could you know, help the poor, here's how you could do this, here's how you could do that. You get calls, right? like, like sales calls about these things, nothing sales is the wrong word, but like promotional calls, right? So many opportunities come to you. Um, and I think that this, mis- that this concept is sort of a reminder of that value of focus, which is very much lost today. And, and we do, or, you know, I did, and I think others would also sort of refer to it as a little bit like new agey to say, like, I'm just going to do this one thing, right? I'm just going to focus on this one thing. Right? No, it's actually, right, in some, to, on some level, right, it's a very rooted concept in our sources. Um, the ultimate test case, in a way, this will be my transition to next week, so you'll all hopefully want to come back, and we'll have some continuity between weeks. Um, I think the ultimate test case um, for this rule of OSEC domestic, because we saw, we looked at a few test cases last time, um, but the ultimate test case is the question of learning Torah. Learning Torah is a test case, first of all, as I said before, because you are obligated to learn Torah all the time. So that's one thing that makes it interesting. 
as opposed to some things which you're only obligated to do sometimes. I mean, at the end of the day, whether you did eat the matzah or you didn't eat the matzah, right? Helena said, you're the one who kept pointing out to us, when do you have to eat that matzah? Pesa. Pesa, right? You've got eight days, that's it, right? After those eight days, I really could care less whether you've eaten the matzah or you haven't eaten the matzah, right? It's irrelevant, it's just a cracker. Um, so some bits don't really fall into that category, and it's easier to see maybe, um, or it's, it's different than to think about where you're busy with one thing, should you stop and do another thing, whatever, right? But but Torah learning thing you're obligated in all the time. And there's also, and I'll start with this next time, sort of like an implicit recognition of two things. First of all, learning Torah um, can't possibly, for, for many of us, it's problematic for learning Torah to actually take up all our time. Right? And if you want to tell me, I, but you know, there are kolals in Israel, etc., or kolals in Brooklyn or wherever where people do learn all the time, that's true. But it's problematized as early as the Mishnah and the Gemara, right? The idea that the only thing you would do in the world is learn Torah is problematic, not just like from a secular, you need to earn a living perspective, but also very deeply within the sources themselves. That's one thing that's complicated about learning Torah all the time. Right? The other thing that's complicated about learning Torah all the time is, tell me about Kavanah and learning Torah. So if you're just, you know, reading through the Gemara, let's say, let's imagine that we all have the ability to easily read through the Gemara, right, without breaking a sweat. Right? So if you're not thinking about what you're doing, if you're not connected to God, if you're not absorbed in it, if you're not present, mindful, not distracted, have you accomplished it? You can't, you can't focus 12, 14 hours straight. It's not possible. Okay, so that's, that's why I want to say that it's such a great test case. Because on the one hand, you're obligated all the time. On the other hand, I don't want to say it's not possible, right? But I'll just say that... Um, that seems like a lot to ask. Right? You're going to learn Torah, you're going to learn Torah all the time, you're not going to stop for other things, and you're going to be present and mindful and not distracted and absorbed and all those other nice things all the time. And is that 10 hours a day? Is that 12 hours a day? Is it 14? Is it 24 hours a day? Like, right, where are we going to draw the line? Because it seems pretty clear to you, to me, and actually to pretty much all the persons that discuss this, that there has to be someone. So that's going to be next class, trying to figure out how both the concept of Osir the Mitzvah, Pastor Mitzvah, Mitzvah, and the idea of how Kavanah ties into that apply to this test case of learning term. Okay, thank you.